Let's reopen our Bibles to the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, and rapidly look at our Savior, defend His identity as the Son of God. In verses 19 through 42, there had been a division among the Jews in the ninth chapter, and there is a division again here in this 10th chapter, right here in this 19th verse. And when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there are going to be divisions. You are going to be separated from your friends, and you will be tried to see if you will follow Him rather than them. Jesus said that we ought to count the cost of discipleship and be willing to forsake father and mother, brother and sister, friends, yea, our own lives also, houses, lands, and the rest, in order to be faithful disciples. And we cannot be His disciples unless we're willing to do that. He arranged it. He will arrange it. He will find out how much you love Him by finding out something else that you love in your life and asking you to sacrifice it for Him. The best choice to make is right up front to give Him all that you have and all that you are, lest He take it from you. Let Him know that He is your all in all. But there was a division. I'm going to take it verse by verse. There's no sense to me in reading the whole passage. You should have read it already or you should already know it and comment briefly on these verses. Verse 19, there was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. Now his saying is what's there in chapter 10 and some of the things from chapter 9. And these sayings created division. Some, the Pharisees, knew that their job was being threatened and their security, so they have one thing to say in verse 20. Others, who are remembering his miracles and who are listening to his words and know them to be true, respond in verse 21. Verse 20, many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? And that's that was the standard position of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the other religious leaders of the Jews. Their response to his teaching, their response to what he said in John 9, and his response to what he said in here so far in the first 18 verses of John 10, He has a devil. This is the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin, and don't be afraid when you find it in your Bible. You can't commit it. You can't commit it on two counts. You haven't been in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth when he was performing miracles to accuse him of performing his miracles by the power of Beelzebub. Second, because you're an elective God, if you've believed on Jesus Christ, you can't commit a sin that's unpardonable because all your sins have been put away by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is explained in Mark chapter 3. It's explained in the Gospel of Matthew. You can't do it. The arrogance, the evil, the profanity of men that would look at the pure life of the Lord Jesus Christ, His powerful miracles, and then charge Him with doing it by the power of Beelzebub because He had a devil, was proof that a man was a reprobate. And God was going to defend the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's integrity that way. Words could be spoken against the Son of Man. But if you accused His power, which was by the Holy Spirit, to be the power of the devil, you were in serious trouble, as the Bible tells us in those other places I mentioned. This is one group. What a division. Others said, verse 21, These are not the words of him that hath the devil. Even if it was the Pharisees, 
and it was likely the Pharisees that said he hath a devil, why hear ye him? There were others that discounted their opinion, their religious opinion, their learned opinion, and said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. And then they appealed to his works, which is what he's going to do in the rest of this chapter. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And this is one of the verses that tell us that 9 and 10 are closely connected. The reason we have that here is that they have just seen a man born blind and had been blind for a long time, now seeing by the Lord Jesus Christ's healing power. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? When has it been done by a devil? It's inconsistent with his works and it's inconsistent with his message. What, what made that difference? The Lord of glory made that difference. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication. And it was winter. Now this is an interesting little verse and I can't spend much time here, but I just want to point out that this feast of the dedication is what is we know in our generation as Hanukkah. This is the festival of lights. This is the feast of the dedication of Judas Maccabees having delivered the temple of the hands of Antiochus IV of the Seleucid kingdom who was known as Antiochus Epiphanes for 2,300 days of desecrating the temple in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel's temple, Judas Maccabees freed it from that, rededicated it, and that has been observed by the Jews ever since. And Jesus graced it with his presence by being in Jerusalem, in the temple, at the feast of the dedication of the temple by the Maccabees during that 400-year period between the two testaments, between Malachi and Matthew. There were great events that took place. They're described in Daniel 8, Daniel 11, and Jesus honored this national holiday. We are sometimes accused that if we're not going to celebrate Christmas, Easter, Halloween, and Valentine's Day, why do we celebrate the 4th of July, Labor's Day, Memorial Day, birthdays, anniversaries, and so forth? Because in the Bible they did. That's why. That's why. Job's children did. Abraham threw a great feast on the day that his son Isaac was weaned. Jesus graced this national holiday right here, though it was not part of the law of Moses. That's why. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and when we look at the road of righteousness, we do not want to get into either ditch. We don't want to get into the ditch being Christians that celebrate pagan days of idolatry, whitewashed with Roman Catholic names. Nor do we want to throw out everything and pretend that we're some holy zealot because we won't even remember God's mercy in a life, or in an anniversary, or in Secretary's Day. Secretary's Day is as good as any day. The poor thing has to work for you. She deserves something on one day of the year. It's, it's no, it's no more difficult than that. But this is, you know, this is a neat expression that you would just blow over. There's no feast of the Jews in the winter. The three feasts of the Jews that are in the, the books of Moses never come in the winter. This is a different feast. And there is a feast of the Jews that comes in the winter. And the victory that God gave, the exploits that God blessed men to have, particularly the Maccabees, are recorded in Scripture in general. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, a favorite place of the apostles, and they would congregate there often in Acts, as we read in the first few chapters, in Solomon's porch, a large porch enclosed, where even in the winter you could be comfortable because it, you were free from the wind and the cold, along with others that were there. Then came the Jews round about him. His own people, the Bible tells us, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
The light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. But they came round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. It's hard to know how he could tell them any more plainly than he had. By his statements, by his miracles, by this very sermon about being the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep, because the good shepherd taught in the Old Testament was the Messiah. There was a shepherd. Did you read Jeremiah 23? Did you read Ezekiel 34? Those chapters, and there's others like them, that include prophecies of the Messiah being a shepherd. And Jesus here is saying, I am the good shepherd. Remember when they came to him in Matthew chapter 12 and said, show us a sign? How many miracles had he performed up to that time? We, they're countless. Show us a sign. He said, there's no sign going to be given to this adulterous and evil generation except the sign of Jonah. Kill me. I'll be in the ground three days and three nights and I'll come out just like Jonah did. Now that's a sign. I will not just prophesy that I'm going to die. I will prophesy that I'm going to come back to life and exactly how long I'll be in the ground. That was his sign. And do you know how he responds right here? He said, I told you. Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. All these miracles I've been doing, who do you think I am? Of course I am. It is so amazing that a people that were the people of God and had been taught the Word of God and had a timeline from God, There were 69 weeks unto Messiah the Prince. They had a timeline. They had a very specific starting point. They had a very specific period of time. They had very specific characteristics. The Bible says a virgin shall conceive. There were all these proofs and many, many more. I'm just hitting a couple common ones that you're aware of. And yet... How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. I told you, and you believe not. I love the way our Lord responds. He answers a fool according to his folly sometimes, and sometimes he won't answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be like unto them. He's not going to engage them in foolish and unlearned questions. He had already showed them that he was the Christ, the Messiah of God. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. That should have been true. How could, how could they watch so many miracles and hear about so many miracles and yet not believe on Jesus as the Son of God? How could Pharaoh ride down into the Red Sea? It's all the same explanation. The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? If he doesn't open our hearts, brethren, we'd be right there with him. We'd be right there with Saul of Tarsus, who told Agrippa much later, Verily I thought within myself to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. But then he met the Lord Jesus Christ and he heard a voice. And that voice called his name. And did he lead that man out? He led that man out. Did he put a fire in that man's bones? Woe is me if I preach not the gospel of Christ, Paul said. If I do this thing willingly or if I do this thing for a reward, then it's for my good. 
But I'm not. I'm doing it for Him who called me and loved me and gave Himself for me, who was before a blasphemer and injurious. But I did it ignorantly in unbelief. But He's been rich in faith and mercy to me, which is in Christ Jesus. And now I preach Him that I once persecuted. Praise the Lord. That is the voice of the Son of God. The voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Great Shepherd, comes to you through the Spirit, through the Word, through preaching, through even singing in here. If you're singing in a song and you see a phrase and that phrase warms your heart, warms your heart, the great shepherd is speaking to you from the voice boxes of the others in this assembly or from this voice box or from that word or by his Holy Spirit while you're in your bed at night. It's the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ carried by the Spirit of Christ, carried by the ministers of Christ, carried by the songs about Christ. And when you, when your heart is warmed, when you're convicted about your sins, when you're directed to look upward, when you grieve for not having loved him more, that is the voice of the shepherd. Hear it. Listen to it. Respond to it. Obey it. Verse 26. Now what makes the huge difference? The doctrine of election makes the huge difference. But ye believed, but ye believe, present tense, not. Because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Now he's been saying that through this passage so far because he's been addressing someone different than them. He has identified that sheep are the ones that go through the door and I am the door. Therefore, if they had not believed on him, they weren't of his sheep. And he's already implied that in the things he said. And he says it's good enough as if he had said, I've already told you this fact. You are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. You hate my voice. You're not of my sheep. But though I've done many wonderful works, and though I have told you that I am He, ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. It is a common Arminian error that if you want to become one of the sheep of Jesus Christ and have Him become your shepherd, and to make sure that you're secure for eternal life forever and ever, that you just need to believe on Jesus. But as we've tried to point out so many times, and brethren, if, if you tire of hearing it from me, it's because I was a 19-year-old boy that read this for the first time of a man explaining this text to me the right way and realized this is new doctrine. This is glorious doctrine. This is true doctrine. You don't believe in order to become a sheep of Jesus Christ. You're made a sheep of Jesus Christ in order to believe. And then we're going to be told how you become a sheep of Jesus Christ. Right here, in this little section about election, what made the difference in the division of the nation of the Jews. Verse 26, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. As many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Luke wrote about Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This passage is not a doctrinal treatise as much as it is an explanation for the division among the Jews. Why was there this chasm between those that believed and those that hated him? Those that said he had a devil and was mad, and those that said these these are not the words, nor the actions, nor the power of a man that's got a devil. What makes that distinction? My sheep, this group, 
the man born blind, maybe his parents, the others that are gathered around that believe, they hear my voice. They know I'm the shepherd. They know I'm the son of God. They follow me. This is practical. This is gospel. This is conversion. This is fourth phase of salvation. And the difference has already been determined in election, which is coming in the next two verses. They didn't. And so there's this division. It's like John chapter 6. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. But him that cometh, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And remember in John 6, he had this huge multitude pursuing him to make him king because they had enjoyed the free lunch of him feeding the 5,000. But he preached enough hard doctrine about no one's able to come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. He spoke enough about being the bread of God that came down from heaven, that if a man were to eat, he would never hunger again. He spoke about eating and drinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and without doing so, you have no life in you. The apostles told him, don't you know these are hard sayings? And he suggested a fourth that would really drive them away, and the crowd went away. The point, if you want doctrinal distinctions, then we go to books like Romans, we go to books like Ephesians. Right here, this is a lesson about the great chasm in the Jewish nation. Some were in the fold and some were not. Some believed, some didn't. Some heard his voice, some followed him and some didn't. That's the explanation, that's the intent of verse 27. There are exceptions. But we're not dealing with exceptions right now. We're dealing with general rules like we are all the way through here. It says in the 8th verse, All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but I'll tell you that John the Baptist was not a thief or a robber. But do you know what the general rule is? It's right here. The general rule is my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. Gospel conversion is the evidence of election, and God has his own exceptions to that, and we're only told about a couple, and you're not one of them, nor is anyone else you know one of them, ever. And so we don't go there because the apostles didn't go there, except to stick those little exceptions out for us to understand the full-orbed grace of God. But the grace of God that is taught while preaching is being done in your hearing is that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And that Jesus Christ is coming with his mighty angels and flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28, My sheep believe, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Speaking of my sheep, I give unto them, that is the sheep, eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now I will tell you that that is obviously legal salvation, final salvation. That is our redemption into the presence of God in heaven, body, soul, and spirit in a day to come. And he gives it to his sheep. What we had had earlier in verse 10 and 9 is the life abundant. It's pastures, it's being fed. It's practical salvation. It's a ministerial salvation. This rises above that. This rises to a place where only Jesus Christ can perform and there is no under-shepherd. No under-shepherd can give eternal life, but Jesus Christ can give it. And then he says, They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Can a man be plucked out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ as far as truth of the gospel is concerned? Happens all the time. The Galatians were plucked out. The apostle Paul would say, who hath bewitched you? 
I marvel that ye are so soon departed from him that called you. But not this one. Not this right here. Because this is not where men have any role. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to save our souls eternally with eternal life. And then he adds to this, and oh, this is painful for the Jews to hear him constantly referring to God as Father as his Father, and that they are together, one in nature, one in power, one in plan, one in purpose. My Father, which gave them me, what is that referring to? Which gave them What's that plural pronoun, them? The sheep. The sheep. Ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice because they were ordained to eternal life by my Father which gave them me and I give unto them eternal life. That's the gift of salvation. It's God giving us to Christ. It's Christ giving eternal life to us. That's the gift of salvation. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Notice how they're in my hand, they're in the Father's hand, and we are together in purpose and plan for the redemption of the sheep. I and my Father are one. One in nature. One in attributes. One in plan. One in purpose. One in power of salvation that's just been right here in the context. They knew what he was saying. They didn't have any doubts about what he was saying. They accused him of blasphemy, and because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. They didn't know that he had a dual nature like we understand by the grace of God. He was the Word made flesh. He was God in the flesh. In that body dwelt the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of the Godhead. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. My brothers and sisters, when you doubt the security of your salvation, then run to Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 39 and run to John chapter 10 verses 26 through 30 and ask yourself, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Fall down and believe on Him again. Call out to the Lord Jesus, your shepherd. Bleat! Bleat to Him! Save me, Lord! He'll reach down and He'll pick up a Peter from the waves. He'll reach down and meet a Peter in an upper room and forgive him. Bleat to him. You say, I can't get anything out. I'm so pitiful. Bleat. The great shepherd of the sheep will be there. Him that cometh unto me with bleeding, I will in no wise cast out. Because let's just boil it. Let's just be honest. That's the best we can ever give. There's no man with enough faith to get him one inch of the way to heaven. It is entirely by grace. Amen. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone them. Oh, they loved the Savior, didn't they? Jesus answered them, I love this. You, you need to love the passage. This is the Lord Jesus Christ on duty as the great shepherd of the sheep, being attacked by wolves that want to devour the flock and deny their own Messiah. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? All the miracles that I've done, help me. Which miracle was it that offended you that you want to stone me for? He has shifted from what he has said to play a logical argument with them. What miracle is it? The proofs of my deity 
the proofs that I am the Son of God, which one of them do you want to stone me for? The Jews answered him, saying, in verse 33, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God, that he had said, My father and I are in the same plan of redemption, that I and my father are one, he had blasphemed in the first statement, he had made himself God in the second. And so they're after him for that. So the Lord Jesus Christ will use another tactic. Now that first one should have been enough. And it's not the first one. It's just the first one in the last five minutes of my preaching to you. There were many more earlier. It should have been enough to say, for which good work are you stoning me? Well, are we stoning him? Are we stoning him because there was a great storm at sea and he said, peace, be still, and there was a great calm? Is that the one we're stoning him for? Or are we stoning him when he took a small lad's lunch and fed 5,000 men beside women and children. There were 12 baskets full left over. Or are we stoning him because he just gave sight to a man born blind that had been blind a long time? That's the Lord's reasoning with them. Now he'll take a different tack. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? That is Psalm 82 and verse 6. Speaking of the civil rulers and magistrates of Israel. Jesus now is going to use their scriptures against them. And if when you run into a Bible believer that doesn't believe the truth and they've given you an opportunity to give a reason of the hope that is within you, appeal to the scriptures. Jesus would with these men. These men claim to believe the Bible, the Old Testament that they had. So he appeals to it. He said, doesn't it say in Psalm 82 and verse 6, I said, ye are gods. Now Jesus isn't saying that. The words from Psalm 82, I said, Ye are gods are all from that 82nd Psalm. Isn't it written back there with a little g that there are some men in your nation called gods? If he called them gods, if God called rulers gods, and the only distinction between them and the rest of the nation is that the word of God was committed to them to preach and to execute, and to be judges. He's building a case. If God called rulers that simply had the Bible committed to them, and they were put in charge of civil and religious matters of the nation, and the Scripture cannot be broken. For those of you who've known me since I was a late teenager and heard that the Bible... Differences that exist in our land. I love this text. The scripture cannot be broken. Meaning that the word that is found there is exactly the word that God wants so that the word God's is precisely the word on which I can build an argument. When the first idea was mentioned to me of being ordained, the most important question becomes, what do I have to preach? Because I'm called to preach the word. So it better be a word that is word perfect. And this is one of my favorite passages. The scripture cannot be broken. The word that is there is the word God approves of. It is the right word and we can argue from it. And Jesus argues from the word God's. They're accusing him and accusing him of blasphemy because he said, I am the son of God. He's going to tell you that in the 36th verse. They're, they're accusing him of blasphemy because he said he was the Son of God. Now, they knew who the Son of God was, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9. He was God. He was the mighty God. He was the everlasting Father. Because he said he was the Son of God. Now, his reasoning is this. 
Don't you have in your own law that your rulers are called gods? And the only difference between those men and you is God committed His word to them, and yet God called them gods, and we know that Scripture can't be broken, so we know that is the exact word that we're supposed to have. God. Say ye of Him, whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into this world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? He's, he's torturing them with their own Bible. If you will call the justice of the peace down the street a God, I'm guilty of blasphemy because I said I'm the Son of God, though God the Father did sanctify me and set me apart to be the great shepherd of the sheep and the Messiah of this nation, but I'm guilty of blasphemy. Is that your reasoning? Well, he didn't let them answer yet. Verse 37, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. If I haven't proven already that I am the Son of God by my works, then don't believe me. But if I do works of my Father, though you believe not me, though you might not like the way I preach and what the things that I say, believe me for the work's sake, that ye may know and believe the Father is in me and I in him. The evidence that God was with him, in him, and that he was in God, that the two of them were working together, and he was truly one with his Father, should have been evident by his miracles. But he tortured them in verses 34 through 36 by an argument from their scriptures. And do you know why he did that? One of the reasons why? Now, obviously, you can enjoy it if you read it and you think about the logic of it. But he wanted to give Jonathan Crosby the words, the scripture cannot be broken. And he wanted to give you those words. And so, when a man writes me yesterday, and he said, why do you pick on other Bible versions on your website? And he was a fair man and a gracious man in the way he wrote. He said, what about the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version? What about them? So I got to write him back. What do you think I told him? Scripture can't be broken, but you got a problem. With those two versions. Elhanan killed Goliath in 2 Samuel 21.19 and your Mark 1.2 says that a quotation from Malachi 3.1 is, is written in Isaiah the prophet. You have a problem. This is why I used to carry NIVs to the bank. I'd love to take someone to lunch who believed in the NIV and show them that their book could be broken. And I would say, did I just break your book? Yes. Is it Scripture? Who wants to answer that? They don't want to answer it. But do we want to answer it? When I go to Psalm 82.6, do you think I get the word gods? You bet I do. When I go to Galatians 3.16, it tells me that the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. And I go to Genesis 12.7 and all the promises made to Abraham from there to Genesis 24.7. Does it say seed every single time? Yes! Praise God. So the Lord Jesus Christ, and you might think, well, he mentioned his miracles as far back as verse 25, and then he mentioned his miracles in verse 32, and then he mentions his miracles in verse 37. Why did he chase that little aside about Scripture? That's all the things that are in the Word of God. That's why we read it carefully. That's why we think about it. He gave us an argument about Scripture. 
He argued from a single word, and that is one of the nine examples that we have in the Bible of Jesus and Paul making a doctrinal argument from one word. Because the Scripture cannot be broken. I'm sorry for chasing that one so long. I, I have nothing to tell you if I don't have the word to preach. And when it says preach the word, I don't believe in some inspired, inerrant book that no one has ever read and that all differs from each other like the rest of the world has. I, I got to hear that Friday night by a very zealous man. A very zealous man full of vim and vigor. I was modest. About the truth. And he said some good things. But you know, he made a statement about these students that were graduating from high school that they needed to be solidly established on the inspired, inerrant Word of God. What in the world is the inspired, inerrant Word of God if your Word of God has Elhanan killing Goliath Isaiah credited for something that Malachi wrote, and so forth. And the promises being made to Abraham and his descendants. I say that's neither inspired nor inerrant. And I'll pick up my 66 Magnum or my 66 volume library and thank the blessed God. I don't know what they're talking about. God never inspired such ridiculous statements in any book of his. Thank you. If I do the work, if I do not do the works of my father, believe me not. Verse 37. Is that fair? That's to get somebody out on a limb. If I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe. For the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Notice the reaction. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. What makes that difference? Is that decent reasoning? Forget the man healed. That's standing there, looking around. Is this good reasoning? But they tried to take him again. He escaped out of their hand because it was not yet his time. And went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, where he was baptized himself. And there he abode, and look what it says, and many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle. This man's better than John that way. But all things that John spake of this man were true. And what was the big thing that John spake of Jesus Christ? There cometh one after me who is mightier than me whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. And I love the 42nd verse. And many believed on Him there. Do you believe on Him here? Do you believe on Him right now? Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the great shepherd of the sheep. Do you believe on Him? Obey Him. Love Him. Live like Him. Serve Him. Serve His kingdom. Serve His people. Love His praise. Love His word. Love His doctrine. Love his arguments. Chapter 10 and verse 35. Love everything that it says about him. Hear his voice. Follow him in all the practical ways that you are able. He's given to you eternal life and the Father gave you to him before the world began. You're in his hand. You're in the Father's hand. We are there secure forever. He laid down his life for the sheep and we remember that at the Lord's table.